Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Luke. As Pastor Brent mentioned, we are going to be starting into our Christmas sermon series uh, as we look at the various narratives in Luke regarding the birth of Christ. This morning we're going to be reading the passage from Luke chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 5 down through verse 25. Follow along with me as I read this passage. Here's what Luke writes. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, as we look at this passage and we see how Luke is going to narrate the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, I want us to understand a little bit of the setting into which this angelic appearance happened. You see, we pick up Luke, and Luke is the third gospel in our Bibles. And so oftentimes, as we come to Luke, we've read Matthew, we've read Mark, we're thinking New Testament. But we need to think back a bit into what the situation was for the people of Israel at this time. The people of Israel were living in a period of silence. 
God had not spoken through one of his prophets for over 400 years. And during that time, they had watched their nation go from the control of the Babylonians to the Medes and the Persians to the conquest by Alexander the Great and then his kingdom was divided and they watched the Ptolemies of Egypt and the, the Seleucids of Syria come and fight over and take control of their land. And then hope began to arise as the Jewish Maccabees revolted and overthrew the Syrians and there was this anticipation that something was going to happen until Rome stepped in and gained control. And during all this time, God was silent. There was no prophetic word. But many who knew the scriptures would remember the last thing that God had said. So if you have uh, your Bibles with you, I invite you to keep your finger here and flip back to the last chapter of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. Because before God went silent, he gave a final word. And this word is directly related to the prophecy that we just read regarding John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 4, let's look at the last three verses where God says to Israel through his prophet Malachi, He says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And with those words, God was silent for 400 years. This was the last word that the people of Israel had from God. And throughout the Old Testament, God's constant message to his people was that they were to repent and to return to him, be faithful to his law. And as we know, the people of Israel were repeatedly unfaithful to the point where God sent them into exile for 70 years. And after 70 years, God in his faithfulness brought them back into the land. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come. This great and awesome day of the Lord was the day that for Israel, they believed that God would come and vindicate them. He would bless the nation of Israel. He would destroy their oppressors. And bring in the Messiah who would usher in a reign of justice and righteousness. This is what the people were waiting for. But they were waiting for centuries. They were waiting for four centuries. Longer than our nation has been in existence. The people of Israel were waiting. And this idea that Malachi speaks of, of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers... I think it speaks of the relationships that would exist, the the natural human relationships, that when there's not a right relationship with God, relationships with others aren't right as well. And so this prophet Elijah that God would send would 
he would be a prophet like Elijah who would bring a, a ministry of repentance and reconciliation of man to God and of man to man. And so it was into this context now that Luke is speaking. But what's interesting is where Luke starts. He starts with a couple who is in a certain situation, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I will remind you, if you have your bulletin with you this morning, there is a handout in your bulletin that you can follow along and take a, a few notes. I've got uh, the PowerPoint on the screen behind me to help us, uh, to help me, I should say, stay on track as we move through this passage. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were in a situation, and this passage gives us four descriptors of this couple. The first two are positive, the second two are negative. In verse 5, we see that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of the priestly line of Aaron. This line of Aaron is the one that was to ensure and assume the responsibilities of the temple, of the sacrifices, of the worship of the people of Israel, of their God. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth were of this line of descendants. So their lives were to be dedicated to the service of God. But beyond that, Luke tells us that they were both righteous before the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 6. They were both righteous before God. Now, that is a very important word or an important phrase. Righteous before God. Because in this day and age, there were many who would appear righteous. Many who had an external righteousness. And as we go through the New Testament, Jesus exposes the false external righteousness of the Pharisees. But Luke makes mention here that this couple was not just externally righteous. They didn't have a good appearance, but they were righteous before the Lord. However, there is a disconnect with these next two descriptions because in verse 7, it says, but they had no child. They were childless. They were barren. Now, we don't want to just gloss over that because that is not just simply uh, an admission or a, a side notation. In the Old Testament, for the people of Israel, fruitfulness of the womb was one of the blessings that God had promised to those who were faithful to his covenant. So this is very much an oxymoron to have a righteous, childless couple. It, it, it wouldn't make sense. It's, it's something that doesn't go together. It's like saying good coffee. Those two words just don't go together. <laughs> so we have a righteous couple who is barren. And beyond that, Luke says... They are advanced in years. This gives the idea, if they were young, you would expect a resolution. One day God will bless. But here they are, advanced in years. They're, they're, they're past their prime. There's no way that this resolution is going to happen, humanly speaking. So as we get down to the end of verse 7, it leaves us with this idea, with this feeling of sadness we love this description of two people dedicated to the Lord from the tribe of Aaron who are righteous before God, but they're barren. And they're advanced in years. 
and it leaves us kind of sighing and going, oh, man, that's just not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And you know, some of us may feel in our lives right now that we're going through a situation where all we can do is sigh. And we say, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe for us, we feel like God personally hasn't spoken to us in a while. Maybe our situations seem hopeless. And in a world that's broken by sin, all of us, in one way or another, live with this feeling of, that's not supposed to be this way. Maybe for some here, it's the same situation as Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you have dealt maybe even for years, with infertility. Or maybe it's a question of relationships. We just read in Malachi about the relationships between turning the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. Maybe you're in a relationship where the relationship between you and your parents isn't right. Or the relationship between you and one of your children isn't right. And your heart is burdened, you groan, and you say, it's not supposed to be this way. Maybe within couples, it's relationship between spouses. Or in the world that we live in, maybe it's the ravage of sickness and disease. Things like cancer. Or ongoing Sicknesses that maybe doctors are baffled by and we just go through day after day after day with seemingly no hope and we think, this isn't the way I'm supposed to feel. This isn't right. But yet into this dark setting, God is about to speak. And into the darkness of our lives, God speaks and he gives us hope. And this is now where we find the angel's appearance in verses 8 through 20. Let's talk a little bit about the context of Zechariah's service because this is where the angel is going to appear. Zechariah was part of the priesthood of Israel. They were divided into 24 units. And each unit would spend one week in service at the temple and then they would return home. And this would happen twice a year. So each unit would be in the temple Two times, two weeks during the year. And so during that period of time, there were various functions that that they could occupy in the temple. But this function of offering incense before the Lord was something that was very special. In fact, this, historians will tell us that this would only happen once in a lifetime. You would only be selected once for this service. So here is Zechariah, a man who is advanced in years, who finally gets this opportunity to go into the temple itself and offer incense to the Lord. The incense being a representation of the prayers of God's people. This was a special honor. And the Bible says that he was cho- at this particular time, he was chosen by Lot. That doesn't mean that there was an element of chance in it. The Lot was used to discern the divine will. And Proverbs 16 and verse 33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision comes from the Lord. 
So we see that as Zechariah is here ministering, as he did every year, twice a week, at this particular time, by God's sovereign timing and choice, Zechariah was chosen to go into the temple to offer incense. And as he was in the temple, all the people who had gathered to worship were outside praying, waiting for him to offer incense. And when the incense was offered, the priests would come out and they would pronounce the priestly benediction on the people. So as Zechariah goes in, the people are outside praying and waiting. And at that moment, verse 11 tells us, while Zechariah is in offering incense, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, Zechariah had been in the temple before. He had ministered before, but this was something that he had never experienced. This was something that none of his contemporaries had experienced. In fact, his father and grandfather and great-grandfather likely hadn't experienced this because they had been waiting for a word from the Lord for 400 years. So Zechariah, naturally, and we see this when anyone is greeted with an angel, one of the first things that the angel says is, don't be afraid. Zechariah was terrified. Verse 12 says he was troubled. The idea there is that he was shaken. He was trembling. He was in turmoil in his spirit. And verse 12 also tells us that fear, or the word can actually be translated as terror, fell upon him. So the angel now is going to reassure him. And he reassures him with two things. Number one, he gives the common angelic word, don't be afraid. Fear not. But beyond that, he gives him with a reason why he shouldn't be afraid in verse 13 when he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What a remarkable statement. How would you feel if there's been something that you had been praying for for years and an angel appeared to you and said, your prayer has been heard? What a, what a blessing. And now the angel is going to go on and he is going to give this announcement of John's birth. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. Now, the idea of naming a child carries a lot of significance Not only in the person who gives the name, but the meaning of the name. And this name, John, or in Greek, Johannes, means, literally means, Yahweh is gracious. What an appropriate name for a righteous couple who has been barren for years, who had lost all hope. Now the angel appears to them and says, your prayer has been answered God is giving you what you have requested and you are to recognize that Yahweh is gracious. And the angel, as he goes on, he's going to highlight four elements, four important things in John's birth. First of all, he says there will be joy, gladness, and rejoicing at his birth. Now, we're not going to have the time this morning to dig into each one of these He also says that John will be great before the Lord. Again, there is that phrase, before the Lord. John wasn't necessarily going to be great before men. In fact, some would doubt his greatness and even his sanity. 
based on his clothing and his culinary choices. But the angel says he's going to be great before the Lord. He was also told that he was going to be holy. He was going to be set apart to the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And this is why there was not to be the prohibition of wine or strong drink because, as Paul says in Ephesians, don't be controlled with wine. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit. And we see even in the womb that John would be controlled by the Spirit so that when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth would say, the babe that's in my womb leaped for joy under the control of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the angel says, he will call people to repentance. And verse 17 talks about him going in the spirit and power of Elijah with the purpose of making ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. The angel is saying to Zechariah that this baby is the Elijah who was promised. Now, what would be your reaction to a declaration like this? I think Zechariah's reaction was pretty typical. He had lots of questions. Have you ever had somebody tell you something and the first thing that, that pops into your mind is a million questions? Like, wait, what, what, what do you mean? How, how like, why... And Zechariah starts giving these questions. And he asks for a sign of confirmation in verse 18. He says, how will I know this? Or literally, at what will I know this? What is going to happen that I can know as a sign that what you said is going to be fulfilled? This was the very same question that Abraham asked the Lord. When the Lord promised him a descendant and gave him these promises, Abraham said, how or at what am I going to know? That? What is the sign? And God responded by giving Abraham the sign of the covenant. So Zechariah here is asking for a sign, and he has good reason. Because he raises doubts based on his circumstances. He says, I myself am an old man. And, beyond that, my wife is advanced in her years. So he is looking, humanly speaking, at his situation and saying, how in the world is this going to happen? But in many ways, Zechariah, as a priest, who was to know the law, should have known. He should have known by looking and considering Abraham and what God did for Abraham that God was going to be faithful. And so now the angel is going to respond. And what's interesting is Gabriel's threefold uh, confirmation. Before he gives the sign, he says three things. He says, first of all, he speaks of his identity. He says, I myself am Gabriel. Using the same wording that Zechariah said, I myself am an old man. Gabriel says, well, I myself am Gabriel. Now the Jews would have known who Gabriel was. But in case there was any doubt, he clarifies it by talking about his position. I stand in the presence of God. So his identity, his position in the presence of God. And thirdly, he says, I had a commission. I was sent. And the implication is sent by God to speak to you 
and to proclaim this good news to you. And then he proceeds to give the sign that Zechariah asked for. He says, you will be silent and unable to speak. Verse 20. Until the days that these things take place, why? Because you did not believe my words and note what the angel says, which will be fulfilled in their time. You see, Zechariah was rebuked here not because there would be normal questions and objections. He was rebuked because when God speaks, the expected response is faith. The expected response is even in spite of all the circumstances and the obstacles that seem to, to be contrary to what is being said, because God has said it, I'm going to respond in faith. Because God himself is always faithful. Paul tells us this when he writes to Timothy. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And God is going to show that here to Zechariah. He's going to display his faithfulness. But as we close, I want us to see that God's faithfulness isn't just to Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's much more going on. Look at, look at what happens starting in verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering at his delay. They're hoping that the incense he's offering is acceptable to God, meaning their prayers are being accepted by God. Zechariah comes out. He's unable to speak. He realized that they had seen a vision. And then verse 23, the time of his service ends and he goes home. But that's not the end. Because we have verse 24 and 25 that tell us that God accomplished all that he promised. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So here is Elizabeth's acknowledgement that, yes, John, God is gracious. He has done this for me. This would have been for Elizabeth a very personal vindication of her righteousness. Even in her old age that God would allow her to conceive would have been a personal vindication to everyone who had looked at her and thought her as being under God's curse because she was barren. She says, God has done this for me. He looked on me. He took away my disgrace among the people. God proves his faithfulness to accomplish his word in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But yet, his faithfulness is for a much wider audience because God was doing far more than Elizabeth could have imagined. This was more than just a personal vindication of this woman. It was a sign for all of Israel. This was going to be the sign that they were waiting for for 400 years. This John, the prophet who was going to come, the angel announced, he's here. He's your son. But beyond that, that prophecy of Malachi says that this prophet will immediately proceed what? 
the great and awesome day of the Lord. He's going to precede the coming of the Messiah. This was the one that had been promised not just 400 years ago, but over 2,000 years ago to Abraham when God told him, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. God was not only fulfilling his promise to one couple, he was fulfilling his promise to the nation, and he was fulfilling his promise to the entire world. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in this story. You know, it's also demonstrated to us today. God will always accomplish what he promises. Regardless of the situation, regardless of how dark and hopeless our own situation might seem, as we sang earlier, we walk by faith and not by sight. Look at what God said to Habakkuk. When God gave Habakkuk the promise that he was going to bring Babylon and, and Babylon was going to be his instrument of judgment on the people of Israel, but then God would in turn judge Babylon in their own time. Look at the words that God said to Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, he said, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. When God gives his word, we can be sure that it will come to pass. Even if from our perspective, it seems slow. And how many times as we read throughout the scripture, even in the book of Revelation, do we see the saints crying out and asking, Lord, how long? How long are you going to wait to fulfill your promises? We've been waiting. We've been waiting so long. Come, Jesus, come. And today we're waiting for Christ's return. Here we are 2,000 years later after he has promised that I will come again. We're waiting. But we wait with faith. We wait with hope and with expectation. And so as we are still awaiting the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises during this Advent season, let this passage remind us of two things. First of all, let it cause us to rejoice at the promises that God has already fulfilled. The New Testament is just full of prophetic fulfillment that God gave in the Old Testament. We see this as we look through the birth of Christ and as we look through all the prophecies regarding his birth, his life, his death. We can rejoice that God has proven himself faithful to fulfill his promises. But let us also, let this passage also cause us to wait with faith and hope for what is yet to come. We just heard Pastor Brent preach from Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 verse 25 says, but if we wait, or I'm sorry, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So as we go into this Advent season, as we think about the birth of Christ, let us always remember that God is faithful. God is going to fulfill everything that he promised. And yes, we are waiting, 
That's what this season is all about. But we don't wait in despair. We don't wait looking at our circumstances and saying, it's too late for us. It's hopeless. Our world is a mess. We wait with hope and with faith and with expectation because God is faithful and he will fulfill these promises. And you know what? This is what we're about to celebrate. As we're going to partake in the Lord's table, this is a remembrance of what God has already done through Jesus Christ. And this is a guarantee. Paul tells us he has given us his Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of what's to come. So as we go to the Lord's table, let us remember and let us rejoice in the fact that we are awaiting what God has already guaranteed. He has already given his seal of approval. So at this time, I invite you to bow your heads with me. We're going to take a moment just of silent meditation and prayer as we reflect on these truths and we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.